that he is coming back for three things. To convict the guilty, to raise the dead, to make all things new. And if you believe he's a consuming fire, you need to give him 30 seconds of praise. You don't want a rock crying out for you. Because when he comes back the second time, he comes back for business. We all understand that he's a consuming fire. Fire does what? Fire purifies and fire destroys. It will purify us who have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and it will disband and completely remove those who have rejected him. Praise his holy name. As we continue this morning in the book of John, verse by verse, we ask you to turn to John chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. That's John chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. And if you found the sacred scripture, would you please acknowledge it by saying, My God is a consuming fire. And we ask you to stand for the reading of God's inerrant, infallible word. John 11. Verses 1 through 16. And the word of God says this. Now a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany. The village of Mary and his sister and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. Whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death, for it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, He said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but 
I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant he was taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. Let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Let us also go that we may die with him. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his holy word. You may be seated. So pastor, what is the importance of Christian fellowship? You know, to understand the importance of Christian fellowship, you must first understand what Christian fellowship is and what it isn't. The Greek word for fellowship in the New Testament is koinia, and koinia means essentially a partnership for the mutual benefit of those involved, a partnership for the mutual benefit of those involved. So Christian fellowship then is for the mutual benefit of the relationship between Christians. You cannot have the same identical relationship with those who are outside of the faith. The mystery and the privilege of this Christian fellowship only exists, my friends, because it is God who has enabled it to exist by his grace. It is the Father God who unites us to believe the gospel in the Spirit of God through Christ and gives us the unity that is the basis of godly fellowship. Jesus describes this relationship in his high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 23. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. You know, the last end of 23 is so amazing when you recognize that when you break it down to the Greek, he's basically saying, Jesus to the Father, let them know that you love them, Father, the same way you love me. This complete unity that Jesus is referring to here means the oneness that only Christians can experience in true fellowship. Oneness with one another, oneness with Christ, and oneness with the Holy Spirit, and oneness with the Father God. Just as the Father is in Jesus and Jesus is in the Father, you and I must have unity with one another. It's the uniqueness that only we can share in a relationship. 1 John 1 and 3 says it this way, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. 
And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We can have friendships. We can have relationships. We can have acquaintances with unbelievers. But we cannot have fellowship with unbelievers. Fellowship requires fellows in the same ship. We're not united with them. We do not have common beliefs. We do not serve a common God. We do not have common goals. We do not have common purposes. Our hearts, our minds are otherworldly because we're following Christ and we're following his kingdom and we're in this world, but we are not of this world. We know that we are strangers and that we long to be home to our true home in heaven. The importance of Christian fellowship is that it reinforces these things in our minds and helps us to focus on Christ, his desires, and his goals for us. Only in Christian fellowship can iron sharpen iron. Christians stir up one another's faith. They stir up one another to exercise their faith in love and in good works, and we do it all for the glory of God. Jesus' public ministry begins and ends with the witness of John the Baptist as he uses the iron of God's word to sharpen those who have been called uh, through repentance in the name of Christ. Now we see Jesus in this subsequent move in the region near Jerusalem. This is his last move. Up to now, we've learned that Jesus is a bread of life. He is a living water that gives life. He is the light of the world. He is the light of life. And now Jesus is going to show us his last sign. I hope you understand that the book of John is really, it's 21 chapters and it's broken down to the signs and miracles of Jesus. And the second part after chapter 12 starts is what? That is the glory of God. In fact, the last, once you start chapter 12 all the way to 21, that's one week. That's the passion week of Christ. So this is his last sign that he gives life through himself, through the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And don't miss this. Everything Jesus has done is in anticipation to the fruitfulness that comes from his death on the cross. And for me, without a doubt, the raising of Lazarus from the dead is the most dramatic, uh, miraculous sign in John's gospel. After, after this, there was no turning back. They had to kill him. He had to go. But yet there's a secondary theme that emerges here in this passage as well. This understanding of Christian fellowship, this koinonia between Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. You know, this is one of the few passages that really reflect on the fact that Jesus had friends. We tend to focus more, and we should, on the divinity of Jesus, on his preaching, on his healing, on the miracles, on his death, burial, and resurrection. But never forget that Jesus is truly man and truly God. 
He was fully human. And having friends is part of being human. The word friend is used to describe Lazarus as a close friend of Jesus. You know, Jesus gives us a glimpse of the importance that he placed on true friendship. And I think you see this stunning level or pattern of personal interaction in John 15, 12 through 15. John chapter 15, verses 12 through 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. We know from the scripture that we in, we're in this morning that Jesus spent time with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. That he taught them and he ate with them. You know, what else did they do? Did they spend nights in their homes together? Did they stay up late and just chat? Did he tell jokes? Did they play games and have fun? Did they attend the synagogue together on the Sabbath? Did Jesus read from the Torah while he was in their home? We know that the life of Jesus revolved around his service and ministry unto his Father God. We see clearly in Scripture several times where Jesus retreats to a quiet mountain area to spend time with his Father. These were times of reflection and restoration. And why did he do this, Pastor? Because Jesus needed to be restored for the divine purposes of his Father in his ministry and life here on earth. But when Jesus spent time at the home of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, this was a human time of refreshing, of refueling in a mutual relationship of true Christian fellowship. For Jesus, this was a place that he could go where there were transfers of spiritual funds of love and caring. Everywhere else Jesus went, he alone provided the deposits of love and caring into other people's lives. Everywhere else Jesus went, there was only withdrawals and depletions made from him. But when he was with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, this was a place of rejuvenation for him. What a blessing it is as a Christian leader or a pastor to find a place among people who rejuvenate you and not just take from you. And I think this may have been the very closeness that Jesus decided to show and showcase the resurrection power through Lazarus. So instead of racing to his friend's bedside, he spent two more days away before deciding to go to Bethany and awaken his friend.
Let us pray. Dear gracious and loving God, why should we gain from your son's reward? We cannot give an answer. But this we know with all our heart, your bruises have paid our ransom. We thank you for your son and our savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. For the death of Christ saved us, redeemed us, delivered us, and placed us into your eternal hands where no one or no thing can ever separate us from the love of yours, O Christ. We come to you this morning asking for forgiveness, forgiveness for our lack of faith, our lack of fruitfulness, our lack of fortitude in a lost and unbelieving world. We live in a world that seeks to change us every day, though we should be seeking to change them. Place a rod of iron in our backs that we might always stand up straight for the truth of your word in all circumstances and in all situations. Teach us that it's always right to do right, even in a world that is bent on doing wrong. Speak to our heads and our hearts today as you remind us that your son, Christ Jesus, loves us, cares for us, and can and will raise us all up on the last day to meet you in the air. It is in the precious name of your son and our Savior that we pray. And all God's children said, Amen. John opens his story in this part of his gospel with these words. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and of her sister Martha. So the story begins, the narrative begins without what seems to be any formal links to chapter 10. Yet if you go a little further, you see that there are deep links present here. Most times, commentators and interpreters of the Bible will link chapter 11 with chapter 10, and really they're linking chapter 11 with the previous chapters 1 through 9, and then they view chapter 12 as standing alone, being like a transition between the public ministry of Jesus and, as we shared before, the week of his passion that goes through the end of the book. But I think when you look at this closely, you see it's wiser to tie chapter 11 with chapter 12 and take it all the way through the end of the book. We remember in chapter 10, that was a determined effort to arrest Jesus, but he successfully escaped and he retreated. The central reason that Jesus is even thinking about going back to Judea is because Mary and Martha had said that his friend Lazarus is ill. And the fact that Jesus is coming back to Judea is a great testimony for his love for those and a great testimony about his obedience 
when he felt the move of the Holy Spirit calling him back to glorify God the Father and which God the Father would glorify him in this action. Even though later on when we get like verse 54 of chapter 11, you'll see that Jesus again withdraws from the authorities one more time before his arrest. Until then, he remains only a few miles outside of Jerusalem. But listen to me. There is an incredible transparent irony here. Jesus goes back to raise his friend from the dead, and that same action of raising his friend from the dead precipitates the Sanhedrin's decision to kill him. And then he will ultimately be raised from the dead. Just like it said, and we read this earlier, John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. The name Lazarus in Greek is Lazarus, and it comes from the Hebrew word Eliezer, which means God has helped. Jesus is a God who provides the help that is needed in Lazarus' life on this side of eternity as well on the other side of eternity to come. Bethany lies on the east side of the Mount of Olives, less than two miles from Jerusalem, along that road toward Jericho. It must be distinguished from the Bethany that's mentioned in John 1.28 and the Bethany that's mentioned in John 10.40-42. That is why you notice when John speaks of Bethany now, he calls it the village of Mary and her sister Martha. As we look at verse 2, we see something very interesting. John introduces Mary in this passage. And really, he doesn't start talking about Mary until the 12th chapter, verse 28. But he introduces her as the one who anointed the Lord's feet and wiped his feet with her hair. Look at Luke 10, verses 38 through 30, uh, verses 38 to 42 should do it. Luke 10, 38 through 42. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. I want you to picture this. Jesus comes to your house. One of the sisters get up to make sure everything is in place. Everything is spotless. Everything is organized because Jesus is in the house. But the other sister values that Jesus doesn't come to the house every day. So I'm going to make sure I sit at Jesus' feet and that I listen to his teaching because this is a moment. It goes on here. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the feet and listened to Jesus' teaching, but Martha was distracted with much 
serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So Mary immediately recognized the value and the importance of spending time and resting in the place of Jesus. She instinctively understood that relationship requires that we are not distracted by the rhythm of life. You know, you, know you, you understand that life is like time, it just goes on, and that you have to purposely and intentionally withdraw yourself to spend time with what is important. All of us are on the same clock. I know some of you think you got somewhere to be, but we're all on the same clock. We make it a priority whether we want to be somewhere on time or we want to leave early. She understood that true relationship requires a real investment of your time and your talent. John later identifies Mary. Here he's alluding to the episode where she poured perfume on the Lord's feet. I think John here presupposes that the people that he's talking to have already heard the story uh, from Luke or already heard the story throughout the church. This story shows a deep and great relationship between Jesus and the sisters concerning service and care. I think John is speaking to a Christian audience here, and there are two things to be kept in mind. One, Christian and Jews were in steady contact with each other because the Christians were trying to do what? They were trying to convert the Jews at a moment's notice, so they kept repeating the stories of the greatness of Jesus. Secondly, this story of Mary was a high-profile component of the Christian witness. We notice here that John is real careful not to refer to Jesus as Lord before Easter. He only uses that remark in a special purpose. But we see here, that Jesus recognizes that this incident of illness is really only a test of the sovereignty of God. It's only an opportunity to give his disciples and an unbelieving word, world an object lesson that this illness will not lead to death. Look at verses 3 and 4, chapter 11. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Here the sisters address the Lord Jesus Christ Kurios, which is common in Greek to mean sir, but they spoke Greek and Aramaic. Nine times out of ten, they were referring to him in this address as rabbi. 
So when they used the word Lord, they wanted to show everybody who heard that Jesus was their master and they were his disciples. The reference to their brother as the one that Jesus loves, the one whom you love is ill. Hence, at the deep friendship and relationship that has not been explored throughout the Gospels. It clearly denotes a deep level of intimacy. And you know, there are several other verses in the Bible. I'm just going to go through a couple here that use this same compassionate language. I mean, you can go back to the Old Testament. You can look at Genesis 22, 1 through 2. And after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he says, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, whom you love. Now, everybody knows that Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. But he says, no, take the one you love, and he knew he was going to take Isaac. And go to Mount Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering on one of those mountains of which I shall tell you. Then you see it in Ecclesiastes 9.9. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he has given under, uh, you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. And it changes here in Matthew 17 and 5. This is God speaking. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, and this is God speaking, God the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. The phrase of one whom you love, highlighted by God, is, changed over here to my beloved son. But we recognize that John tells us in John 3.16 that he gave his only begotten son, the one he loved. Jesus is pleased with his friend Lazarus and because of his faithfulness and his loyalty. When he heard that Lazarus' illness, you you can sense the tension in his voice. Even though he fully understands the outcome of the crisis that it will work out for Lazarus good for all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and those who are called according to his purpose Jesus knows that this sickness is not fatal Jesus knows that it will not ultimately end in death really far from it it will end in resurrection from the dead it will end in glory for God. Jesus was clearly saying here that this illness would not lead to death ultimately, but it would lead through death. Look at the preposition. It would lead through death to a better understanding of his resurrection power. Really, if you think about this, what's happening in John 
4, 3, and 4 is really akin to what happened in John 9 and 3. He is a blind man that's born blind from birth, and he's only been born blind from birth, not because he sinned or his parents sinned, but only that the work of God might be displayed in him. Lazarus is sick, and he's only sick because God wants to glorify himself and to glorify his son as well as seeing him being raised from the dead. But always remember something about the Gospel of John. When John talks about God's glory, it's not like we talk about God's glory when I ask you to give him praise because of who he is. When John speaks throughout the Gospel about God's glory, it's all about God's self-disclosure of who he is. Look at John 1, 14 through 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. Look what it says parenthetically. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And we recognize that Jesus was born six months, at least after John the Baptist. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he, personal pronoun referring to Jesus, Jesus has made him known. Now through the death of Lazarus, God's glory will be revealed. And God, the Son, will have his glory revealed as well. The raising of Lazarus from the dead provides an opportunity for God to revel in his glory, to glorify his son. The father's express purpose is always to honor his son, and those who honor the son will honor the father. Jesus says, for his part, that he has glorified the Father by what? Completing the works the Father assigned me to perform. You see this relationship of mutual love and respect. The Father and the Son are mutually committed to each other's glory. And the irony here is that in the miracle of restoration of the life of Lazarus, that both the Son and the Father are glorified. You know, that supreme moment of glorification comes at the cross of Jesus Christ at his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus wanted to clearly teach his disciples and other believers here that this is how you walk by faith and not by sight. I know what you see. I know that he's ill. You see, true faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Only in this world do you have to see it to believe it. To be a Christian, you have to believe it to see it. Though 
his disciples here could not see the ultimate outcome. They had to believe the ultimate result because it shows the power of Christ who is the light of the world and who calls us to walk in his light. Look at verses 5 and 6 here. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place that he was. Now, you would think because of the great love Jesus had for Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, that he would get on the next thing smoking. But here, you see that he purposely waits two more days. And he does this to glorify his father. Now, if you have an NIV, it may, it may say it differently. It uses the word, therefore, in our NSVs. It says, so when he heard. But then when you follow the other participles here, when you have hos and you have un, then the translation should really sound more like this. When therefore he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. You know, my teachers always told me that whenever you see the word therefore, you need to stop and ask, what is therefore? And here we know what it's there for. Jesus is motivated to take a two-day delay. And he does this because of the love that he has for Martha, the love he has for Mary, the love he has for Lazarus. But pastor, how in the heck could this be? Is this love? Jesus allows his friends to go through the sorrow and the hardship of the death and the mourning of Lazarus because he loved them and he wanted them to witness the amazing demonstration of his power over death. They wanted, he wanted them to see God's glory and God wanted to see him glorified by doing it. He wanted to show them that God always hears your prayers, but he doesn't always answer them the way you expect. Lazarus took ill. Jesus is outside of Jerusalem. He's in the Transjordan. It's going to take Jesus only one day. It took the messenger one day to get from Bethany to get to Jesus. It would have taken Jesus one day to get to where Lazarus was. But immediately Jesus knew by his supernatural understanding that Lazarus was already dead. In fact, he died as soon as the messenger had left. Jesus is laid for two more days, making sure that it would be four days when he actually made it to Bethany. This was a deliberate refusal to be manipulated by the event. You can't, have you ever tried, I know I've tried, have you ever tried to manipulate God? Have you ever tried to hurry God up to do something? Because of your urgency? Well, Lord, if you don't move, that's the quickest way to get Lord not to do anything. You cannot bully or pressure God. It won't work. God, Jesus is waiting on God's timing here. And also, because of Jewish myths, remember when you died, the Jews believed that your spirit stayed in the area for three days. Okay? So he, uh, 
Jesus wants to make sure he's dead long enough that they don't think this is a resuscitation, but this is a resurrection. Remember, they even accused Jesus of a resuscitation. Oh, he didn't really die. He just got in a tomb. It was cold and he woke up. The miracle that Jesus had performed was going to confirm the faith of his disciples and the faith of those other believers there. Jesus' timing was regulated by his God's will. He wasn't rushed by the requests of family and friends or the urgency of the moment. Jesus is going to accomplish two things here. He's going to powerfully demonstrate himself as the resurrection and the life, and we'll see that later in John. He's going to powerfully establish the faith, not only of his disciples, but some Jewish onlookers that are amazed at what just happened. In either case, the delay is good. Look at John 11, 7 through 8. After this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you are going up there again? We see here the word noon, which normally means now, but I think this is a better translation when it says, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. This is a reference to what took place last week when we were together in John, John 10, 31, somewhere in there where it says the Jews picked up stones to stone him. They picked up stones to stone him because he was saying that he and the Father were one. The Jews, his disciples, unbelieving Gentiles, no one recognized that the death of Christ, which is an appalling event, would also be the glorification and the consummation of his ministry. You know, Jesus had told a story earlier and then repeated it later in chapter 12 of John Chapter 12, John 23 to 26. This is what he says. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Here Jesus is talking about his own death, burial, and resurrection. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life, listen to what he says, look at the qualifier. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus is saying, if you're my servant, you must be willing to walk in the light with me as long as it is still day. 
verses 9 and 10, Jesus answered, Are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Is the light of Christ in you? Because it's a guiding light. It's a light unto your, it's a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Before they had timex watches back then, the Romans divided the day into 12 hours, day and night. And during those 12 hours of daylight hours, most people worked. There was no IPL. When darkness came, they stopped working. But here, Jesus is referring not just to the world's light that comes from the sun, but the world's light which comes from the sun. Jesus is the light of the world. To walk in the day means to walk in his light, the light that Jesus gives, the direction that Jesus orders, to walk in fellowship with Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to obey Jesus' word, in contrast to walking in the night, which is walking apart from Jesus, not believing in Jesus, not obeying Jesus. This is an indication that this person does not have Jesus in them. And they are not in Jesus. Stop seeking fellowship with those who are not in Jesus. Yeah, you can seek conversion. You can tell them the good news of the gospel. You can work because you love them and you want to see them find themselves in the only thing that can save them in the center of God's will. But you can't walk with them. What does Amos say? Can two walk together if they don't agree? What does Jesus say? What relationship, paraphrasing here, what relationship does darkness have with light? Don't you know darkness hates light? Don't you know light exposes darkness? You want to find out who your true friends are? Act godly around them. And see if your godly actions draws them to you or repels them. You'll find out real quick. Jesus is divinely called to Judea because of Lazarus. And he's going to walk while it was still day even though he's heading toward the cross, Jesus is absolutely determined to go to Judea. And he's trying to get them to understand metaphorically here that you are safe regardless of the external dangers if you're walking in the center of my will and you're with me and I'm with you. Yea, do I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil, for by rod and your, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. There is no safer place than in the center of God's will. I don't care what the world is doing. You are, I don't care if corona is knocking on doors. 
you are safer with God than you are apart from God. Jesus is saying, walk in the light as long as I am here. And that I will never leave you nor forsake you. So how does he keep that promise, Pastor? He does what in John 15? He gives us the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to sing you what? I'm going to sing you another helper. Another advocate. That's going to do what? Bring back to your memory all that I have taught you. Jesus is trying to get through to these disciples. As long as you have me, then you need to walk in the light. As long as it is day, walk in the light with me. Understand who I am. There was a great reformer called John Husk, H-U-S. And he's a man who believed the scriptures, as I do, to be inerrant and infallible. He believed in the supreme authority of the scripture in all matters. He died at the stake of Constance in Germany. It was his 42nd birthday. As he refused a final plea to renounce his faith, they set the fire. And his last words were, what I taught with my lips, I will now seal with my blood. And they said the flames did not, you know, usually you burn, it burns slowly. They said the flames just swept up over him and took him quickly. Jesus would seal with his blood what he taught with his lips. Just chapters further. His death will govern our resurrection. Jesus is concerned about deliverance. And that's why he says, I was glad that I was not there when Lazarus died. Look at verses 11 through 13. After saying all these things, he said to them, plural, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I must go awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant that he was taking a rest and sleep. Jesus informs them that Lazarus is asleep. Jesus tells them, I must go and wake him up. The contrast between the plural our friend and the I am going is not, is not accidental for John. John wants that contrast. He wants to you to see, wants us to see, he wanted disciples to see the I am, the ego e me. I am the resurrection and life. If I don't go wake him up, he's not waking up. You see a failure here of the disciples to grasp the significance of the metaphorical reference here. But all through the Bible, falling asleep has meant dying. I guess the closest Old Testament equivalent would be they went to sleep with their fathers. 
You see that in First and First and Second Kings, and then in also Daniel. But all through the New Testament, uh, that euphemism would always be they have fallen asleep. But those who have fallen asleep will all one day be awakened by Christ Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. And it's kind of funny when they didn't mean it this way. You know, it's amazing how many times in, in scriptures that people say something that, that is absolutely scripturally correct, even though they don't know that. Okay, the disciples are saying, well, if he's asleep, he'll get better. They use the word sozo, which means that he will be saved. Look at verses 11, as you were, verses 14 through 15. So Jesus told him plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. So that you, now don't miss this, for your sake. I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. So Jesus was concerned, you know, if I would name me one person in the New Testament that ever died in the presence of Jesus that's not found in Revelation. Name one. You can't die in the presence of life itself. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. No one has ever died in the presence of Jesus. Until Revelations, when he comes back to settle scores, oh yeah, that's a problem. So Jesus said, no, no. For your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there. Because now you will believe. The totality of Scripture, again, never shows anyone dies in the presence of Christ. We meet another character here that we haven't spoken about before this passage, and it's Thomas. Now, we're going to get to know Thomas a little better later on, and we'll get to know him uh, by the fact that he's called Doubting Thomas. But it's amazing here that he doesn't show any doubt at all. Again, it's one of those opportunities where he doesn't know what he's saying, but he's saying the absolute perfect thing. He tells them, well, let's just go with him and die together. He didn't comprehend that this Jesus who was about to raise Lazarus from the dead is the same Jesus that would have a death, burial, and resurrection so that he might one day live. And as we see later on, I think it's like the 14th chapter of John where they're in a room and the door's closed. They're still concerned about all of the fervor of the attacks of the Jews and Gentiles who had crucified Jesus and they thought they were still looking for them and they're discussing things about Jesus and some of the disciples have seen Jesus after the resurrection and Thomas is like, get out of here. 
I don't believe it. In fact, I won't believe it until I could see his wounds and put my hand in them. Then in a locked room, Jesus walks through the door, not through the door, but through the door while it remained locked. And he picks up right on the conversation that Thomas is having. And after Thomas verifies through his own qualifiers that this is Jesus, he says, my Lord and my God. But here, he just says, let's go and die with him. You know, Jesus came to pay a debt that he did not owe and a debt that we could not pay. You know, people look at the cross differently now than they should. The old cross slew man. The new cross entertains man. The old cross condemns, the new cross amuses. The old cross destroys the confidence in the flesh. The new cross encourages confidence in the flesh. There's a story about, if you would look at the painting of Rembrandt, he has his famous painting called Three Crosses you will notice that your attention will be drawn first to the center cross where Jesus has died. You will look at the crowd that's gathered around the foot of the cross. You will be impressed by the various and detailed facial expressions and actions of the people that are observing an awful crime in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But if you look long enough, your eyes will finally drip to the edge of the painting and you will catch the outline of a figure, a figure that's almost hidden in the shadows. Art critics will tell you that this was a representation of Rembrandt himself. For Rembrandt recognized that he too was there because his sins helped nail Jesus to the cross. I believe that Thomas spoke better than he truly understood. But we need to understand that if we are to walk in the true light, we must follow Jesus wherever he goes, and we must be willing to die with him. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just love and praise you, and we just we look forward to picking up our cross daily to bearing it. We look forward to having our flesh mortified because we know that we cannot reign with you unless we suffer with you. So Lord, again, put that rod of steel in our back that we will never, ever falter in standing up for what is true. If the whole world goes amiss Lord, we will stay in the midst of your will, right in the center. For there is where our safety lies. We love you. We praise you. We need you now more than ever. It is in the precious name of your son 
and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all in all God's children said, Amen.